0: Hello and welcome to Very British Futures, a podcast about British science fiction on the Gogglebox. We're going back to the 80s, and indeed, it doesn't get much more 80s than today's subject. He was a TV star, a chat show host, DJ, pop star, industry shill, and he had his own action sci-fi series too, Max Headroom. As ever, there will be spoilers. And it is great to welcome two friends of mine to talk about cyberpunk and satire, Amy Elizabeth and shameful Steve Noble. Hello and welcome to the show.
1: Hello, good evening. Hello,
0: good evening. Uh, How are you feeling today? Better for now. (laughs) (laughs) How much better can it get, Gareth? (laughs) Amy is an actor, singer, voiceover artist and sometimes writer who keeps being talked into my odd projects. Steve is a Bristol-based sci-fi and comics fan who's written strips for many British magazines, including the Red Dwarfs magazine, Doctor Who Monthly, Count Duckiller, and Rainbow, as in paint the whole world with. By day, a sales manager of communications technology. By night, contributing to reviews to the Talking Pictures TV podcast. Promoted as the first computer-generated celebrity, Max was in fact an ingenious combination of prosthetics, video effects and actor Matt Frewer. He was developed by the directing team of Annabelle Jankel and Rocky Morton, who had made a name for themselves with innovative pop videos and writer George Stone. Max was a handsomely sculptured head and shoulders with a gleaming quiz show host persona that appeared live in in your TV screen. His original role on Channel 4 was to be a video DJ linking pop videos on the Max Headroom show. But the channel felt he needed explaining with an origin story and commissioned a one hour sci-fi drama called Max Headroom 20 minutes into the future. Which was broadcast on the 4th of April 1985, two days before the first edition of the Max Headroom show. The pilot movie was directed by Yankel and Morton and written by Stephen Roberts, inspired by the ideas of Yankel, Morton, and Stone. Music was provided by Midyear and Crisscross. The wild popularity of Max Headroom on both sides of the Atlantic led to a short-lived 13-episode US series being commissioned by ABC, and the British pilot was remade as the first episode, Blipverts. However, we're going to concentrate on the Channel 4 original. The original UK pilot was released on VHS by Virgin, who also published a paperback illustrated novelisation. It was also released on DVD in Japan. And there was even a computer game for the Spectrum, Commodore 64 and Amiga, based on the pilot episode. So, Steve, would you like to sum up the premise of the film? I would be
2: delighted. It's 20 minutes into the future. Edison Carter is an investigative journalist for Network 23, the future's highest rated news channel. Blocked from a live investigation by Grossman, the head of his own network... Carter does some digging with the aid of girl in the chair, Theora. He discovers the work of Bryce, a teenage boy genius who has created Blipverts, 30-second ads compressed into three seconds that can induce spontaneous human combustion. Bryce and the network conspire to hinder Carter's investigations with the aid of thugs Bruegel and Mahler. In a thrilling chase, they chase Carter through the Network 23 building only for him to escape on a motorbike. But at the last minute, Bryce activates a ramp, and Carter smashes his head into the eponymous Max Headroom sign. Carter is given up for dead, but his consciousness is uploaded into a brand new computer-generated TV personality called Max Headroom. Max becomes a hit for crusty bus-based TV station big time, and Carter and Theora reunite to bring justice to Bryce and Grossman.
0: So. How aware were you of Max Headroom and indeed this film back in, back in the day?
1: At the time, the actual film, I'd say not very much because I was very young, far too young really to be staying up and watching Max Headroom, but I was a somewhat precocious child who wouldn't go to bed. Um, so and the film itself is very much of, of a lot of material of that time which is no bad thing. Um, It it would have mashed into a lot of other films and a lot of other things for me, I think, as a small child. But Max Headroom himself, incredibly vivid memories of him. More so, I think, probably because I was a child. And it's that eye candy, isn't it? Constant Mm -hmm. motion, bright Mm colours. It's loud. It was brash. Uh, It was new. It came online, um, as I remember not like a program but like it had interrupted the programming you know? <laughs> so um and then of course max headroom was everywhere <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i don't think you could have existed in the 80s and not been aware of max headroom even if you'd never watched the television <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: but true think... he was all over the posters mm-hmm. how about yourself steve you now i
2: i um have a strange thing with max headroom so i was a big So I was in my early 20s. I was at university. I probably just graduated at the time it came out. Um, And don't you two look at me like that. Yes, I was. (laughs) (laughs) I'm that grizzled old bloke. I say, don't believe a word of it. It's it's entirely (laughs) true. But no, I remember watching it on TV. Now, I was was living in Reading. Uh, I was watching and reading a lot of science fiction. I'd read me William Gibson, huge Blade Runner fan at the time. And... was so looking forward to it so looking forward to it and it came on it was like oh yeah it's like Blade Runner on a Tomorrow People budget now I'm going back to when I saw it this is when I saw it so I remember being hugely disappointed there's another disappointment but we'll talk about that in a minute um but actually watching it so I hadn't watched it since I actually had not watched this pilot since and I watched it over the weekend and thought this is actually loads better than I remember. I mean, it's loads better than i would remembered, which was really interesting. Um, And the other thing is, and I'll challenge you on this, we'll maybe just come back to it at the end. There's a trope that starts in this. There is something that is ubiquitous in science fiction and genre stuff. And this is the first instance. And... You'd be surprised if you don't know it off the top of your head, you'll be quite surprised when I tell you, I think. But we should mm-hmm. save it. That should be the quiz for the end. Save
1: that for the end. I think, <laughs> I, think I might know what you're referring to.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> Go on, Gareth. What about you, mate? Um similar I think a similar sort of story to uh, Amy in in the sense of although I was a bit a little bit turbulent. Um I was very aware of Max Headroom as an image as on posters uh, actually from that computer game. One of the reasons I mentioned the computer game is that he was appearing on computer game magazines at the time. So I kind of, and the actual, but the actual uh, film I actually watched almost by accident. I seem to have a memory of just coming across it, missing the first five or 10 minutes of it and watching the rest and being amazed. Wow. This this is a really good bit of science fiction that uh, seems to have come out of nowhere, and it's and it sort of stayed in my mind uh, until I sort of re reencountered it many years later. I remember, and actually, I remember the VHSs being in the VHS rental shop and uh, renting those out because the first season of the American series came out on uh, on on VHS, and uh, a friend of mine was. Re- really into Matchroom, and I remember watching them round, round at her house in student days. So, it's, as you say, it's cyberpunk. William's, uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer is probably... It seemed like the key text at the time. Cyberpunk was one of these things that at the time it seemed to come out of nowhere and be really exciting and fresh and a new sort of, kind of really getting away from the whole sort of Star Wars, which had kind of been the template of science fiction, sort of like for the last decade, where it's always night, evil corporations are ruling, everyone has cybernetic implants, and everyone's a hacker, and they're going into virtual reality, and it all seemed uh, so. Max Hedroom certainly seemed very uh, zeitgeisty. To, but do you want a direct quote? Though? Can I? Can I do a direct quote? Please okay. do direct quote from
2: Neuromancer. Sky was the colour of a TV signal tuned to a dead channel. It's a famous opening sentence. How does this start? Ah. It starts mm. with a TV signal. Swear to God, that fades into a landscape. Mm. If it was a visual quote, it's quite a clever one. I'm sure that George
0: Stone, who appears to have been quite a switched-on writer, was very aware of his Gibson. I think so, definitely. He also said that Philip K. Dick was a big influence. <laughs> uh, and you can see elements of that in Matchhead Room in this blurring of reality. And and fantasy And uh, apparently I only just discovered this via uh, MaxHeadroom.com Which I feel I should give a shout out to Because it's been very useful in terms of research for this podcast And they had a very good uh, cartoon by the artist Ron Cobb That showed a man stumbling over a nuclear wasteland Looking for somewhere to plug his television in and that was apparently another one of the sort of key images that uh, Max Hedroom came out of. I've always uh,
1: about that, because in a lot of these types of science fiction, you have this desolate future where most of the people you see are, de- are destitute, homeless, you know, the rest of it. Uh, they have fire and they somehow have somewhere to plug in a television. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name of the concept, but it's sort of pyramid of needs. And at the bottom, I don't think they imagined it would be food, warmth, shelter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's where you're wrong, obviously.
0: (laughs) Uh, Intriguingly, in the American series, which I I, I won't be able to resist dipping into here and there, there is a, a line in one of the later episodes where... It's a. The episode is all about people becoming literally addicted to a programme because of a sinister signal that's hidden in the uh, transmission. So much so that the people are risking their lives to pull TVs out of the wreckage of a building. And somebody says, why are they doing that? You get televisions on the welfare now. So it's that sense of television is one of the basics of this society. That's
1: the opiate of the masses, isn't it? But do you, not, do you not think it was one of the things
0: it got right? I mean,
2: ubiquitous mm-hmm. TV. I, I I made a little list of things that seemed like ridiculous science fiction concepts at the time. So, um, ridiculous. okay, TV everywhere, which actually, and I did think, if you've seen They Live, the John Carpenter one, which was after this, same mm-hmm. thing. People down on their look, everybody's sitting there watching TV. So there was that. I love the bit they go, uh, we're going to have a conversation. Well, I'll talk to him on the video link. <laughs> and was, Ooh. Now what are we doing now, ladies and gentlemen? We're doing yeah. exactly that. There was um, there's the TV bit where um, uh, Theora wakes up and the program on the TV is Doctor Symptoms looking at anal pustules. and I thought it's embarrassing bodies. <laughs> it, it is exactly that. There is um...
1: my personal favourite was God. He's a good guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, you think? Okay, so there's there's bits and bats of everything. So that little bit. It's very Douglas Adams. There's a couple mm. of bits. There's in fact they one after the other. There's digital watch songs. Uh are your your favorite yes. themes from Digital Watches, followed by God, He's a Good Guy. That was their 30 second homage
0: to Douglas Adams, I thought. Just in that little bit. In later interviews when Max was being Pedro inevitably people would always ask him, What's your favorite song? Because he was uh being a DJ. And he'd always and in fact he'd usually say it was digital watch tunes volume two
2: <laughs> haven't we all got that mind you volume one if you can get hold of that collector's item <laughs> <laughs> the other ones i was going to do the, the the other the other things that they actually got right but they don't talk about too much um the democratization of media production the the whole ludicrous idea that everybody could have a tv channel
1: you know, mm. back in the mm.
2: 80s, this was huge. Oh, my God. Now, we're sitting there. We've got one now. You know, you got one in the palm of your hand. <laughs> you can make TV today.
1: And Channel 4 had only just started. So Channel that's 4. One. Yes, okay. that's right. Yeah. That oh, good. number
2: 4. You know, <laughs> I've got... Um... I've got 33% extra entertainment to watch tonight. I'll do, I'll do the last one. The last thing that I... Well, and again, if you guys have got one. Um, things they got right, but hugely understated. Bice, the I- incredibly irritating Bice, sits there and goes, <laughs> this is the future. People translated as data. And now we're looking at everything you see on the TV is manipulated to some extent. We now have completely three-dimensional characters And personalities that that there's no human ever been involved with, you know, apart from the programming.
1: Well, yes, today um, I got a thing from Netflix saying brand new anime uh, series, Resident Evil, completely CGI, you know, they've absolutely right. um,
2: Hollywood stars recreated. As pixels, you know, uh, which is just done as a matter of course now. That
0: I don't think about it. I don't know if I'd even seen the advert, but, but we've got Albert Einstein selling us smart meters on TV at the moment. <laughs> that's <Wow. basically>. that's <laughs>
1: Max <maximum-ish>, isn't it? <laughs> Einstein selling you a smart meter. Mm, yeah, I
0: think that's another
1: thing we got right. Yeah. Well, smart. Like a smart. lot, Unfortunately, got right, and uh, we could have done without half of it. We didn't heed the warnings, did we? <laughs>
2: Mom, Unfortunately, but not that smart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it, it hologram with Richard Burton when they did the War of the Worlds theatre tour? Yes, it's yes a, I. Television, it. You know, it's, it's a, <laughs> to want a better word. A live projection.
0: Yes, yeah, Max headroom. I think is very impressive for getting something of a Blade Runner vibe. You know, on no doubt what was a budget of you know. 5 dollars sort of like in a sandwich sort of like, that they did made it on i, I remember looking at uh, you can certainly tell that that, that yankel and morton were uh, pop music or rather pop video directors i should say it absolutely screams out i mean it's absolutely perfect for this subject which lends itself to something that's very stylized and visual but i remember i was, when i was watching it for this podcast and thinking you know you could put an UltraVot song over any part of this film, and it would work. Well, they did. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs>
2: during Chris Cross, they
0: absolutely did that. <laughs> 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 so, so,
2: so, well, okay, OK, I'm going to give you the one, the, the none more video moment, the none more rock video, because there's loads. You're absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the cramped sets, the fisheye lenses on people to disguise the lack of money they've got, all, all the clever <laughs> stuff. But the one bit is where uh, uh, Edison has just smacked his head and disappeared, and he's you know, the barrier's broken, and out comes Theora through the through the rain, through the rain <laughs> of the sprinklers, glimmering in her in her 1980s Mac. <laughs> um, with the rain pouring down on her lovely wet hair, you know, and, and in soft focus, to I think, aha, they've made a rock video or two, I suspect.
1: <laughs> I was kind of glad for the Mac at that point because I thought, oh, uh, here we go. It's the wet t shirt portion.
2: You have watched too many '80s thrillers.
0: Far <laughs> oh, too many. <laughs> and then,
1: then I realised she'd put her coat on before rushing out to see if he was dead, which is it's quite presence of mind, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry.
0: showing herself to be a good sensible girl, Friday. There,
1: always put your coat on.
0: When I first approached um, you, Amy, to be in this podcast, you said some really interesting things about Max.
1: Oh, I wish a I could remember him now.
0: Uh. <laughs> he's a monster, but he's a very appealing monster and a warning.
1: Yes, he is, isn't he? I mean, one thing I get now looking back, which obviously I probably didn't get as a child, and I wasn't that far ahead of my time, um, is that he's this massive, almost uh, juxtapositional, <laughs> subtle <laughs> joke played on the media by the media you know it's it's like Mm. i mean if you you hear about from the writers he was always intended to be a satire and as we said he was everywhere and if this satire was going to be successful then he would end up as the kind of media juggernaut he was lampooning and there was only (laughs) ever one end for max Headroom. he was either going to become establishment or <laughs> yeah and and kind of thankfully he, he did both the coke campaign that he, he headed up which probably the most max headroom thing that could have happened you've got this classic drink that they decided to mess about with because they felt they needed to be new and modern and and all the rest of mm. it um it wasn't going very well because for a hundred years <laughs> people <laughs> had quite enjoyed this drink so they employed max headroom who was the ultimate it wasn't a word then, I don't think the ultimate edgelord bait, I think for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what Gareth, I'm sure that's what you were thinking as well. <laughs> bait, softer, so. all,
1: all the people they wanted to satirize and lampoon pretty much jumped on the bandwagon, possibly with the exception of sort of ABC Television, which saw the joke and decided to go with it. But yeah, that the, the Coke campaign, this, this disaster couldn't have been headed up by a better figure than mm. the media figure created to um, subvert that exact type of thing. <laughs> so
2: yeah, I just, I mean, do, do, do you think that's one of the reasons why he was so flash in the pan? I mean, absolutely, to go like, like, to go from nothing to huge to nothing in a really short space of time, like probably less than a year, the whole phenomenon mm. came and went so quickly.
1: Well, yes, yes, because like I said, he he was either going to um, become part of the establishment, which he was, you know, lampooning, and the best satire ever is the satire that doesn't have to degrade anything, it doesn't have to, you know, talk it down or poke it, it just has to be it, it, you know, satirises itself. So, yes, definitely flash in the pan, because he was either going to sell out, which was... Intrinsic in Max Headroom, anyway, mm. or he wasn't, and he wasn't going to be part of the game anymore. So the fact that he disappeared, I think, is probably the better of the two. He's
2: still, like, <laughs> he's still out there. His head is still in cyberspace somewhere. Uh, it's on a tape backup somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that. Probably, probably half-inch B.T. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the thing is, if you brought him back, he wouldn't. Would he? I mean. Futuristic as he was, recognizable as he would be now, certainly mm. that satire element wouldn't be a thing anymore. Because no. with the things going on in the news, especially at the moment, um, mm. how could he possibly? You know, he isn't loud it's enough, he isn't vacuous and soundbitey enough, he isn't, you know, pretending mm. to be meaningful in, in short bursts enough that things have got far weirder than Max Headroom ever, ever predicted.
0: That is true, absolutely. With um, In some ways, he was like the first influencer before. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll chalk another one up for
2: Max. That is amazing. <laughs> can, can, I, can I just say that? Something I very, I very much remember from the time. Um, so I was in, this is how old I am. I keep going about this. I was in IT. I was in IT in 1985. I was working for a firm called Digital Equipment. At the time, second only to IBM in IT in the world. Uh, the whole we were all in our 20s you know it's a brilliant place to be great fun and I was so looking forward to this thing they went the first computer generated host you know and I was thinking come on bring it on you know and I was working with workstations and we're doing some interesting graphics and all sorts of stuff came on and as this bloke comes on and it's a bloke in a rubber head Hmm. I was so disappointed. Now the only the, the thing in the thing in the pilot is there's the thing with can, oh I've got the, can, I've got to do one shameful steve joke I've been saving this one Are you ready. So you've got the computer generated parrot. What is the computer genera- generated parrot made of? Polygons. Oh. oh. Thank you ladies oh, okay. and gentlemen you can applaud later. <laughs> that was kind of what I was hoping for from Max. And in fact, in the, you're still getting over that one. I know. <laughs> but there was there's a couple of scenes where they're building Max, which is kind of what I thought there would be. And obviously, they'd had a go at doing a proper computer-generated Max, but it's probably ridiculously expensive. So they will do a guy in a rubber head, stick some backgrounds behind him. Uh, there's the, a documentary, which you've probably seen, which followed when I was watching on YouTube, where Peter Wag, the producer, says, you know, everybody thought he was computer-generated. No, we didn't. It's a guy in a rubber head. Looks like a guy in a rubber head. Pretend. I don't remember it's
1: thinking true. that exactly. Oh, <laughs> oh I, don't,
0: definitely.
1: I don't think Max Hedroin was actually as, as and don't get me wrong, I liked it, I still do. I, I think it's got a lot going for it, even today. I don't think it was actually as popular with the public as media people either wanted it to be or hoped it would be by jumping on this kind of edgy hip bandwagon of this mm. computer-generated AI. And part of the joke, of course, is that he is fake. Mm. <laughs> and, what's <more> ir- <laughs> and what's more ironic than a man pretending to be an AI that looks a bit naff, <laughs> pretending to be a real man. <laughs> it's like, why would you have real people? Why, why?
2: <laughs> You're saying he invented postmodernism as well. Well, no, uh,
1: should... the 80s was postmodernistic, let's face it. It was uh, every pop video was a mishmash of. Uh, there'd be somebody in Elizabethan costume, and somebody in Georgian, and then somebody, you know, somebody in some kind of silver thing with a ray gun. And <laughs> <laughs> You know, and as you say, dark backgrounds, very little scenery. You know, just like pockets of what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It takes the time to move away from a decade before you really see its style. I can remember. Uh, I mean, back in '85, I just sort of started Metropolitan College, and. Uh, I remember a lecturer complaining about the trouble with the eighties is that you do you the it's got no style of its own. It's just taking bits <laughs> from other decades and mashing them together. So I mean, we're talking talking about I mean talking
2: about influences on um, on Max, and, and again, there's a great documentary on YouTube about how it was made. especially actually longer than the pilot, which is fascinating. Um, <laughs> Annabelle Jankel says, Yeah, we, we were interviewed. It's We were influenced by Blade Runner. She also says they were inf- influenced by Brazil, the movie Brazil. And there's lots oh. of close ups on grungy stuff. And, but actually, Brazil only came out literally, and I checked this six weeks before uh, Max Hedrum. So there's obviously an aesthetic going around. We're going to do mm. big old fashioned typewriter keyboards. We're going to do gunge on everything. And Brazil looks so similar, but they must have been filming pretty much at the same time.
1: Absolutely. I, say, I don't get so much of the Blade Runner thing, apart from a nice long shot of skyscrapers. I don't see a huge amount of um, similarity between those two films myself. Maybe I'm the dress sense. Play, Maybe a think. bit of
2: the dress <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah. but,
1: um, apart from the fact that they, they are that sort of dark, lit kind of thing going on in the 80s, I would say it was more like Brazil. I, I actually made, was going to make that mm. comment without the awareness mm. it was mentioned. Um some of the time, you know, I, I can see Jonathan Price coping with the paperwork on one side of London while Edison Carter's gotcha. <laughs> been <and, laughs> crashing into barriers across the other side. But, but yeah. That
2: was a strange thing. It was obviously in people's brains at the time. But as I say, they literally were released almost in parallel, which is which is quite strange. And of course, they're all filmed in the UK. Maybe the UK design crews were hopping between mm. them.
0: I don't
2: know. But you see, it, was, <laughs> it is and also, that was the UK at the
0: time. Actually, they were just filming the outdoors in the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> oh, you said. It's funny, if I was watching, it and uh, Tina of a partner said, "Do you think we could convince some kids that this is what life in the north is like?"
1: <laughs> 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 I don't remember the 80s being quite so dark and dirty. I'm sure the, the sun seemed to shine a lot. But I don't say there was a decade of that kind of. Dirtiness, so they built? Sort mm. of, bags piled high, litter everywhere. I, I'm convinced now that actually the British psyche was quite damaged by the bin men strike. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, it so. could well be. Plus then you have the whole punk thing came <laughs> along, which is yeah. all messy. But certainly sci-fi went very grungy, definitely, mm. in, in, in the 80s. I think in some ways perhaps it was a bit of a reaction to the 70s, which... Although actually Star Wars is actually, when you watch it now, it's quite, I like the way it's quite lived in. It's quite a dirty, lived in kind of universe, Star Wars. But a lot of the other stuff was definitely shiny, a mm. uh, lot of white, a lot of silver going on. And then I think in the early 80s, you had this reaction. And the, yeah, this is great look. I'm glad you brought up Brazil because, cause yeah, that's what actually leapt out at me, this mishmash of technology. That's on the show that gives it a, a nicely, slightly otherworldly uh feel to it all. It's, I mean, Brazil starts with that marvelous "somewhere in the twentieth century" yeah. statement, and I think Max Headroom has a bit of that feel as well. Twenty, 20 minutes into the
2: future, it's it's almost mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's also there's also actually, I mean, we're talking about the visual styles. Sorry, I'm interrupting you um, the, the the visual styles of stuff. Um, what is, is interesting is that Max Hedren was a broadcast TV show. If you watch it, there's so much done on surveillance cameras, there's so much done with captions around the edges, a bit like Network 7 and the TV shows that were on the time. They just took them on a little bit, assumed that the monitors you were watching were washed out and that those captions had been on there for a while and everything's a bit dirty around the edges. But actually, they were just extrapolating what was right there right then. Ooh. And I think using it in quite an innovative way and saying, okay, if Network 7 had been going for 25 years, what would it look like? Uh, it would look like this rather disgusting thing that everybody takes for normal because that's how we've been doing it for a long time.
1: We've got this technology, but it's not really advanced. We're still using it. Or somebody somewhere has got the advanced technology, but it certainly ain't us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there is that. It's, it's that. Um, like Again, low budget, but if you're good, it doesn't matter. Mm. In your face. Extreme close-ups, like you say, the, the lack of scenery, it's up late, it's foreboding, it's moody. And, um, and a lot of, we said before, a lot of stuff at the time was that. So I think it kind of cleverly, uh, especially from a budget point of view, just kind of repurposed things. And, and what you were saying earlier about um, the, the tropes in Max Headroom. Mm-hmm. The way this comes out of pop videos, where you've got to tell a story in three minutes that often had nothing to do with the lyrics of the song. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh,
1: Or you've got to get an advert across. You've got to get all that information across in 30 seconds. I think these people were uniquely placed, Morton, uh, Yankledstone, to pick and choose expertly tropes, stereotypes, everything they needed to shove in there to actually make that one hour this massive... Huge mm. thing going on that on the sur- it's very surfacey, but you could probably pick apart for hours. And and I think again, it's something you can't do quite so much now. There's there's that problem with stereotypes because after seventy years of watching the goggle box, people aren't assuming that they're kind of theatrical shortcuts to give the audience a heads up that somehow they relate to real life. So you're, you're having to chop the stereotypes out uh, because mm. they're so very damaging. But at the time, um, it was, it was drama 101, wasn't it? And didn't make such good use of that in this film as well. You, you, you knew where you were. It was uncomfortable and cosy.
2: But, but you, you're <laughs> absolutely right. And you talked about the, the close angles and stuff and the budgetary constraints. The whole dramatic climax of this film is a motorcycle junk, jump into a bar across a, a car park that you don't see. Mm-hmm. You don't actually see the bike go anywhere. You see a graphic of a ramp rising. You see a stuntman fly through the air, and you see a crunched bar. And you, it, it, they get it out of the way in 30 seconds. It's really clever. It's only afterwards you think, oh, I saw a man fly through the air off a motorbike. Oh, no motorbike. Because they obviously couldn't mm-hmm. to waste a motorbike on a <laughs> motorbike jump. And it's, um, it's very cleverly done. And again, that was that mm. whole... Pop budget, pop video budget thing of the of the eighties. You know, you've got twenty grand to tell a story, which probably seemed ridiculous at the time. It's got to last four minutes. How are we going to do this? I mean, there's there's a close up of edison Ez- Edson Carter um, riding a motorbike, but all you see is his face. The rain pouring down. His hands on a motorcycle, and and, and, and a real crop close up. You've got no idea what speeds he doing. You've got no none of that, and it's very well done. It could be a radio play. You know? It's like that sparks. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think they went with a very good idea when they said they had a, a problem creating a narrative through a selection of pop videos, which were essentially random and had nothing to do with one another, to just go mm-hmm. with, well, here's a segue. It <laughs> is what it is. The mm. uh, I've, I've done musicals like that, quite frankly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In fact, don't tell yeah. us,
2: you're writing <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do uh, you know it's not such a crazy idea? I think so there's something. Yeah, there's it's something cool. yeah
1: A <laughs> musical probably would work. Actually,
0: <laughs> you could actually you could have his big head yeah. looking down mm-hmm. on everybody. Sort of, Very yeah.
1: multimedia. My drama school would have approved. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ah, well, we've talked a lot about sort of like the look of the world of Max Room. I think we ought to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the characters that are inhabiting it. I'll you, Amy, what what did you make of uh, Matt Frewer and Edison Carter?
1: Well, again, going back to style, the all-important style on this thing is that Matt Frewer, um, firstly, I, I'm going to make a confession, probably well into the 90s. and probably until i watched him and this other gentleman on star trek next generation i thought matt fruer was dwight schultz <laughs> 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 um, this poor guy's entire career to some geezer i liked in the 18. Um, <laughs> but no matt fruer is very good with style which of course mm-hmm. you see uh exemplified in max headroom himself and then in the actual thing, he knows his job. There's nothing major going on here. It's straight into the hack acting. I'm the,
2: you
1: know, <laughs> backside, hard-hitting, you know, investigative journalist hero. Don't you get between me and the story? Yeah, and so on and so I'm going to punch my producer in the face. It's like the Sweeney <laughs> with cameras. And, uh, and he does it. He just, he gets on with it. He's, um, I don't know whether he's a little vocally subtle occasionally i get the impression they may have had to redub some of the soundtrack and mm-hmm. that it not quite worked but um, but yeah it's um it, yeah i i like him there are, there are little scenes like when he's in the lift and mm. because of the kind of hack acting and i mean that by he's playing one not he is <laughs> <laughs> it, it, he looks genuinely scared huddled in the corner there and, it, and it's snapshots into this mm. scene he's not, not really got anything to work with except himself and the fact that he's uh he's, he's not really an action hero and he's being chased by heavies and somebody's messing about with the lift you know? um <laughs> and uh, yeah he, mm. he gets that across so uh he's i think he's one of those quite underrated actors he's a very good tv actor i don't mm. think he'd do it on stage but he uh, he knows his job and uh, and he gets it done and and of course that comes out when you watch him in other things because he, mm. he does different things and there are plenty of very watchable actors who don't so you know
2: mm. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you there Amy I thought it, he, he is never quite the star um, that you thought he might be There's mm. not many people you can look at uh, that actually you can take one shot and they go Oh and that threw her. And then go. What was the next thing he did? What was the previous thing he did? He ended up being like a second henchman in in Robin of Sherwood. You know, he's still mm-hmm. on TV. He still does stuff. He still has that strangely angular look about him. Yes. Never. Mm-hmm. And, and and you get the impression that maybe that uh, if he found the right franchise, he'd have just gone on and done it like um, I don't know the guys in Fast and Furious or something like that. You know, <laughs> um, he never quite did. Never quite hooked into it. I think, and I hadn't really noticed it. You're right. When he's sitting there shivering in the hospital gowns, that's a really nice take. That is a mm. scary man. And I hadn't really thought about that. I love the 250 yeah report. That was, <laughs> one. I, was I was always gonna be a writer. I was always gonna be a reporter. Never did those things. But that's it. Punching <laughs> out the editor, because yeah, yes, that's me.
1: Two <laughs> <reporter. laughs> <Getting> bowled <laughs> out by
0: your director. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yes, I I'm I'm very pleased I mean, yeah, I'm a big fan of Matt Frewer too. I'm going to join in the Matt Frewer appreciation. I think, and I, I quite like the idea that almost by accident he got to be an action star and a lead in a series like this yeah. because of that angular face. If you look at the rest of his career, most of the rest of his career he's been playing eccentrics and uh, various colourful supporting characters in other shows because of that face, because he he's very good at being... You know, a bit, a bit off kilter and strange, but yeah, I think he makes a nicely offbeat action hero and as a lead for this kind of thing.
1: Well, it's true, and it's it's often the case. Um, he, of course, he's studied uh, apparently in Britain that the really good actors very rarely are the stars because mm. they're the ones that can put in the difficult roles, and the difficult roles are never the lead ones. <clears throat> they're the slightly forgotten about secondary roles that. Somehow have to hold the plot together while, uh, uh, mm. in Matt's case, ironically the strong chisel jawed um, guy, the you know, main guy. <laughs> it's it's a funny old thing. It, it, I did a lot of comedy at drama school. The lovers, who were usually the main characters, are actually the least developed of of mm.
0: the
1: come out. Everyone else has a very strong structure to them. Um, you know, you, you get them today, of course. You've got your villain and your sort of your captain buffoon figure. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, there's uh, going on to um, two of the other characters. Where have we got? You know, I might have to pr- correct my pronunciation here. Uh, Bruegel and Marla? Is that it? Brugel. Bruegel. Bruegel.
2: Bruegel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said Brugel. You say Bruegel.
1: Call the whole thing off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Brugel um, was in the Magic Roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> oh. they,
1: um, they're the rude mechanicals, aren't they? They're Rosenkrantz and Guildenstern. You know, they're, yeah. they're the Nicely
2: Guildenstern. done. Yeah, you're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> and and all, they are a trope in themselves. There's the, uh, you know, the lug and the intellectual. But the intellectual isn't that intellectual. And, you know, in fact, there's an interesting point I'll make up while we're talking about these two, which feeds into the rest. There's a, a really nice bit when they've got Carter in the back of the van and they take him to the body bank. And uh, he's about to smash, uh, Marla's about to smash Edison's fingers. Mm. And of uh, course, Bruegel, uh, brag, bro. Oh. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> uh, and says, you know, don't do that. Hands are worth a lot of money. Cameras aren't. So there's this kind of reversal that the tech is worthless. <laughs> the Person's worth something. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's a theme of science fiction, I think, that almost makes science fiction science fiction. This idea that as technology becomes more human, Humans become less human, mm. less worthy, you know, as we're finally getting rid of this mechanistic idea from the Middle Ages of what it is to be a human idea. Um, uh, you, they're sort of going back to making mechanical humans uh, and the mm. worry that we will be the mechanical humans. <laughs> but the, mm. the thing I wanted to bring up was he turns around and says, don't smash his fingers, basically, you Luddite. A luddite was somebody who smashed up machinery because they thought they were taking the job. So he's used this uh, phrase completely out of context, uh, in the opposite manner in which it's meant. I don't think that word's thrown in there accidentally. I think mm. they could have been like Um uh, but luddite—it just sprang out of me as like, yeah, that makes a point. That one word right there.
2: You I, hadn't, I hadn't even thought of it. But you said Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And, of course, he's quoting Hamlet. He's quoting Hamlet, the contagion. Mm. The little uh, he does in the front is totally Hamlet. I, I hadn't even thought of that. But, you know, the scariest bit, their scariest bit is mm-hmm. when, you know, it's not their threat because they're not that threatening. They're not that effective. It's, yeah. when, it's when Bruegel gets in the back of the van and you see his whole backside through his trousers. <laughs> it's very Mad Max they'd obviously watch their bit of Mad Max but oh no I don't want to see his bottom please <laughs> can, can I just chuck in a, a performance point as well to, uh, to Blank Reg Blank Reg is played mm-hmm. by Morgan Shepherd, the guy who oh, runs the TV right. station who Peter Wag, the producer said, no actually it was Rocky Morton said he would go on set and, and the guy would make him laugh so much he'd, and he's supposed to be the director, he'd have to walk off and come back on <laughs> Um, because I hadn't really realised this, and he was familiar, he's the guy with the punk rock haircut, it looks like he's about 60, but really wasn't, but he's in a ton of cult stuff. He's in Doctor Who, he's in The Prestige, he's the dad in the first Transformers movie, um, he's in Wild at Heart, he's in Day of the Triffids, he did over 200 parts in TV and movies, mm. and he was always the dad, even when he was young. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating guy, and he just gets it right. You know, slightly chewing it over, slightly too wise for everything, gets the gadget working. Uh, even carries the Max Headroom box as if it's really heavy at one point, which obviously wasn't.
1: <laughs> well, again we were discussing this while while you were away. Um, we were discussing this about how the really good actors tend to be put in the more difficult parts, which mm. are never the main parts. And and I do have to give uh, Reg. Mm honorary mention for his performance because I thought it was spot on. He's obviously uh, a class act and a class actor. Um, mm. but when he's eating the Alphabetti spaghetti and uh, he's touching <laughs> he says over my dead body, will we get Max Headroom back, you know, the machine? And he just sort of stops and says, I'm going to put the wheels back on the bus. Oh, that that great? <laughs> What a great line. What a fantastic line <laughs> that was. <laughs> and uh, And you just think yeah, he he might be this sort of ancient punk rocker, and you're supposed to <laughs> think that maybe he's a bit stoned and all the rest of it. But he's probably one of the wisest people in the entire film.
2: Mm. Thing is, thing is, Amy Gareth, the the, the mm. old punk rocker, those are all my friends now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, Blank Reg by the. <laughs> You go to no, a gig you'll... in Bristol. You go to uh, a night out with the fleece in the Brit in Bristol. You'll see many an aged punk
0: rocker. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have an excellent set of friends there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of W. Morgan Shepherd. He's uh, one of those actors, like you say, he just seems to have been in everything. He's uh, he's one of those marvelously versatile. Character actor. Well, like you say, he's played a lot of dads. He's played a lot of authority figures and father figures. And in charge, I was reading an interview with him in uh, Starbust magazine, and he said that Blank Reg was one of the favourite roles he ever did. Yes. And uh, and I think his uh, relationship with with him and uh, Dom- Dominique is uh, it's a joy. Again, it's another trope. It's the uh, socially that's kind right kind of socially yeah, aspiring yeah. wife but, but, yeah. but, but again she
2: she, she dominique she's absolutely absolutely fabulous 10 years early mm. isn't she she is she yeah. is that she's got the glass of champagne all the time she's got a bit of money but you know and she wants to look good on it but at the same time
0: she's riding around in a glastonbury bus <laughs> <laughs> And and then and I think I don't know if this is the trope that you were uh, referring to earlier talking about the uh, the girl in the chair.
2: Oh, you get? <laughs> yes, it <laughs> absolutely is.
0: The <laughs> girl in the chair for Jones. see, oh.
1: quick—we don't have any significant female characters. Uh... Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: as as played by Amanda Pays who's uh, another person with quite a long list of fantasies. This is one of her first roles. I think she'd been a a model, and then she'd kind of gone into acting, and I think this is one of her early roles. It kind of made her famous. She's still doing it, though. She's she's in The Flash. (laughs) She's in The Flash on a regular... Both series The
2: Flash, both incarnations, which is interesting as well. Mm. She did The 90s Flash and does the current one as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's basically the same character, that sort of technical help, Girl Friday type character for the hero. That's but you know, you know you know go on, sorry, I'm, sorry, go.
1: That sort of perky RP, like you mm. say, Cher who's uh you know against Bryce's technical whiz. She's also she almost schools him, doesn't she? she like does. what kind of boy ever tidies things away? You know, she's it's almost <laughs> like I, I,
2: I know all about boys, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, okay. no, I'm
1: I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna school this boy like a mother and teach him a few <laughs> uh, well, on the tech-
2: I'm going to tell you something I don't think either of you know. Are you, where she's, are you where she's the first one? She's the first girl in the chair. She's the OG. She's the uh, example. Now, I hadn't realized this, because it, it comes up, guy in the chair, guy in the, seat, guy in the chair comes up mm-hmm. in Spider-Man, comes up all over. Like, it's in Marvel Universe. It's in everything. She was mm. the first She was the first one, and if you check the tropes out, they go back to it gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and they're in everything now. They're in computer Mm. games all over the place. She's the first one that was guiding somebody through a maze with graphics. Uh,
1: About that, because I was I was racking my brains for this is such a thing now. It was one of the points I've got written down in my notes. Yeah, it's (laughs) one of the things that I'd got that yeah that that tech person in a chair an almost puppet hero, uh, you know, go left, mm. go right. And, and that feeds into mm-hmm. the of video game thing. But yeah, I was, I was racking my brains for an, an earlier instance That's of that. exactly and right. Yeah. Partly
2: because we didn't have IT so much before that, partly that, but I remember mm. playing a game and I wish I could remember the name of it. I think it was probably Commodore Amiga game where mm-hmm. you were that person. There's loads of them about now. Uh, mm. And that character is ubiquitous these days. But back then, this was a first. It was a real thing, you know. And it's amazing to think that this humble little film that's so derivative in so many Mm. ways actually came up with a real trope that we watch every single day now. It's just the accepted thing, the companion that sits there and guides you through. Every computer, Mm. most movies have
0: it. That is I must admit, I didn't realise it was the first one. That, mm-hmm. is, uh, that is really interesting, that. I do have a couple, a couple more influences. Can we do a couple
2: more influences? Yes, please do. they had been watching their David Cronenberg because the network stuff, the TV stuff, is very Videodrome, two years earlier. Mm. And the exploding head is right out of Scanners, the, uh, the Blipverse. <laughs> By the way, surprisingly gruesome. You actually see the head. You see the skull. Mm-hmm. You see the whole thing explode. It's quick, but that was obviously that's scanners, and it's totally scanners. But they loved their Cronenberg. They watched their Cronenberg. Uh, I mentioned Mad mm-hmm. Max Two already, and the bit where I know we've given Theora credit for the for the girl in the chair, but actually the bit where they fight for the security system is mm. actually the actually the motion detector in aliens again. It's it's they're doing mm-hmm. that, they're doing that they're doing that. And I think that's something I hadn't realised at the time. I was a bit disappointed because I thought it was lacking in in elements. But actually, the amount of computer graphics then uh, for that show mm. at that time—you probably watched this probably eight nine minutes of computer graphics in that sixty minute show. Mm. That would have been hugely expensive at the time. I know yeah. it sounds, it's like you do on your spectrum, yeah. or whatever. But it it, it was it, it was quite a development, though, I think. And I I took it for granted at the time because that was what I was working in, but.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was going to say it's wireframe graphics. That's another very uh, eighties trope. I think of early science fiction wireframe graphics. You saw, uh, there went for a a period where every film had to have them. The writers are interesting because Mm -hmm. it's Annabelle
2: Jankel. By the way, Chaz Jankel's sister. Bit disappointed we didn't get music by the Blockheads because that was his it would have been a different movie uh, but actually he ended up doing lots of electronic stuff as well so um, so the writers, Annabelle Jankel, Rocky Moore and uh, George Stone, George Stone, interesting character because there's nothing by him out there you go and look and he's, he's he's interviewed for this and it doesn't seem to have done, it seems to have done very little else Steve Roberts yes. Steve Roberts, who gets the screenwriting credit has mm-hmm. done loads of Disney cartoons, moved out there for actually moved out with his pilot and lived in there but his first credit is Sir Henry at Rawlinson's End, the Viv stands. Oh. He gets the credit for writing that, which is uh, quite a jump to this, and mm-hmm. definitely a jump to DuckTales, which is what he ended up writing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, I think that's
0: very impressive. I, I think there are some writers who are really good. That they can turn their hand to anything. let say I wrote Rainbow or
2: I wrote, wrote Ducular. But at the same time, me and my mate Kev, Kev Sullivan came up with a, uh, a, a horror comic called Bloody Hell. And this horror <laughs> comic called Bloody Hell was for David Sullivan, the porn publisher, who was, frankly, publishing anything <laughs> at the time. You know, do you want a budget? I'll give you 10 grand, just get this magazine out. Uh, and it was great. We did one issue. I <laughs> <laughs> pull the plug uh, but I'm quite proud of it to this day so I could k- kind of get it if you've got that versatility about you the one thing that disturbed me about the ending now um, I've, I, I was never anything but a, a very very much a journeyman writer um, but there's one thing that really bothers me about the end which mm. is it doesn't work if Bruegel and Mahler haven't changed sides and decide to go against Bryce and Grossman, mm-hmm. which is what they do but their change of mind is never explained. The only hint on the way is that they say at one point, I don't really like that, Bryce. That's it. About halfway through, they say that. And suddenly, the flip-flop's done. They're killing the, the, the side men for, for Grossman and Bryce, and they're holding them hostage in, uh, whilst um, you know Edison Carter interviews them. But there's no motivation. They've just suddenly done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's that's the crux of the plot. It suddenly happens.
1: You it's do easy. get the impression there's a scene cut there, don't
2: you? Yeah. <laughs> uh... After a scene cut, just suddenly realise we've got to do this in an hour, you know, uh, yeah. and yeah. we thought great. we had ninety minutes.
1: Yeah. And make your own reasons up. Things like uh, maybe they've. Maybe I I got the impression maybe Edison Carter had had filled them in about blipverts and things, and they just thought, well, (laughs) really? Um, (laughs) On top of not liking rice. Anyway, possibly just the motivation of fresh bodies. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That
0: actually is better.
2: (laughs) better. (laughs) These are quite
0: expensive, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) That actually Uh, does make more story sense. Um, Yeah. Uh, my- I'm glad actually you brought that up because I was going to mention that My only real criticism Certainly on the writing front of Max Room, Is that, yeah, it's suddenly It just seems to come to a bit of a screeching Halt in the last 10 minutes It's like, as you say, it has that slight feel of Ah, we've only got 10 minutes left to finish this story so it's, like, it's And it's been all lovely built up and paced up to that point Which yeah. is why it's more noticeable
1: It does seem odd, actually, from... Uh, The point of view of the rest of it being so uh, slick on such a small budget, uh, so well um, jigsawed together, you know, from Mm -hmm. what they had to use and what they needed to do out of it, that that they would just sort of, oh, we haven't got an ending. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) I I don't know whether maybe it was a misguided, deliberate act, you know, a kind of Mm -hmm. to be continued because this was an origin story. Um, but, yeah, it just sort of comes across as, uh, hi, we know about the bad people now, and somehow it's all going to be okay. I don't see how, really. <laughs> all you've done is one news report. But it would it would require people to actually either have a conscience at the top, which is uh, the other character. Yes. You've uh, mm. had a conscience all the way through. So that's that, mm. be, yeah, it, it's kind of like if any person up in that boardroom kind of went, Ah, oh, chop off his newsfeed. We'll just pretend it didn't happen. Then mm. there is no solution to this to these horrible people who don't care if people die so long as they make their money. Yeah.
2: In fact, if we wanted mm-hmm. to if we wanted to reverse engineer the storyline, maybe. And again, I watched this. It's a very good documentary where and where Rocky Morton, and Annabelle Jankel talk about mm-hmm. how they went out to the States, and, and Peter Wags talks about how they got HBO just to agree to make it. And it literally was their first meeting, and HBO said, we need a hit, we'll give you the money, sit there and finish <laughs> it. And I'm suddenly thinking if HBO had said to them, make a series of it, they're thinking mm. they've got a one-hour special, and suddenly they have to leave it open. Suddenly, they actually, they've gone from, here's a self-contained story. Because the weird thing is that Max doesn't feature at the end.
1: Max mm. is no, there's no, uh,
2: uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the hero, of the story, the
0: character, the thing is the name, named after. You don't see him for the last 10 minutes. He's not in it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a spout. I suppose at the time they were thinking, oh, it's leading into a series that's just about to begin. Or even though Edison and uh, Fiora Aren't or At least weren't originally they're, they're not part of the Max Headroom show So that could be why Ends is slightly open-ended I mean you can certainly believe that Grossman Has got enough enemies on the board That they'd be happy to pile Pile on him And uh, it, it seems slightly odd That we've had this build-up about the Zigzag account that they absolutely Must have not like, oh, no, we have to have it or we're doomed and we have to use blipverts. And suddenly that kind of gets hand-waved away without explanation at the end.
1: don't know. Is that part of the vacuousness that they're sort of lampooning, that the ratings are the end in itself and there's Mm. no real danger? There's no... I mean, who does Grossman work for? For instance? Is it his network? Has he got people above him? You know, the, the mafia mafia it or something? <laughs> I think it's all important ratings. For what? I get Rating, yeah, I get the you feeling know? he's working for
0: somebody, you know, if it's yeah. just if it's just shareholders.
1: <laughs> well, even so, it's it's kind of, is it worth that his very obvious on screen sort of moral collapse? it's <laughs> <So, laughs> It he does have a character journey. That guy, I'll, I'll give him that. Mm. And it, again, it's quite well pointed. You you get it along the way. Um, it
0: it does. Yeah. The, Nicholas Grace does a, a great job. I think on. Again, oh. he's he's another trope: grossman, the evil businessman But he does from being very sleek and in control, and by the end, he's all bedraggled and sort of like yeah. uh, second guessing himself.
1: <laughs>
2: no, but I was. It was. Uh, I was genuinely and pleasantly surprised at how good it was to go back and watch. And having watched it 30 years ago when it came out, and having not watched it since, and having watched the character get diluted and diluted, Max Headroom, I was really pleasantly surprised how much it held together. Yes, you could see the influences, but it was still worth watching in its own right. And to find, as I say, a trope that came out of it, that you think, wow, that's where it started. That's actually something to, to give it credit for, you know? It wasn't an expensive production
1: actually, yeah. the one I thought you were going to make. Yeah, go on,
2: go on.
1: The chat was uh, what I believe is now called the Glitch Bot.
2: Completely good
0: yeah. answer, yes. Hey, brilliant. Tell, tell us more.
1: This uh, creation isn't real because it occasionally breaks up, you know, its form yeah. breaks up, or it stutters like a stuck record, you know, Ooh. or the, the sound suddenly goes funny on it. This, this um, again, um Sorry, so did you
2: just say this, this? <laughs> this, this. this.
1: <laughs> um <laughs> It's device that they use to say, this is an artificial being. We're going to do this. So the one, you recognize its artificiality. Two, it becomes very non-threatening because you realize it's not mm. real. Mm. But at the same time, uh, it's faulty, which humanizes it. Yeah, you know, It's it's not perfect. There's nothing more threatening than a, a perfect uh, android, is there? It's... Mm. Uh, they have, to, they have to make them look different or have no emotions or, or something. You know? uh, but, yeah, the, the glitch bot, which, of course, is everywhere now. Loads that of is them.
2: brilliant. You're absolutely right. That's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than the guy in the chat. The glitch bot is better. And I was just thinking, and my brain's gone, it's the guy in uh, Blade Runner 2049 who is the antithesis, uh, Ryan Thingy, who is absolutely the perfect mm-hmm. human. Exactly. As, you say, as scary, because you can't tell. Because it's a bit blank, the glitch spot completely humanized that. That is, yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Well, I think we have some nice closing comments from you, Steve. On but Amy, would you like to give them a summing up? Oh, um,
1: it's, it's been interesting for me to do this one because, as I say, I was uh, I was the same age as my little boy when this came out. Oh. Uh, I'll give myself away, I was seven, I said, way too young to be sitting, sitting up watching Mike's bedroom, but. And I remember the, you know, the whole Max Headroom thing. I I remember him being in odd places, like uh, on Wogan. That that stuck (laughs) out. I just thought, why is this happening? Even as a small child, (laughs) I I think I wasn't taken in by a lot of of the Max Headroom media juggernaut because I was too young for it. I I hadn't gone sort of all Emperor's New Clothes. I think at (laughs) at that point, (laughs) when you're that. Uh, so watching watching something again that I saw as the surfacey, brightly coloured, primary colours, constant motion, eye candy thing that I saw, this head that didn't seem to talk much sense, uh, and yet people seemed to set great store by, uh, <laughs> and then realizing that um, that was the joke now. Uh, <laughs> but I'm I I was the little sort of boy going. Yeah, naked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming back to it, and, and like you say, the wealth of things in there, they've, they've got an hour, and it, it's like somebody gave them an hour to make a music video in the style of getting a whole story into three minutes. Uh, so they, it's packed. It's packed. I'd recommend it to anybody. Give me a watch. Um, interesting from a size five point of view. It, it wasn't created to be a narrative particularly, you know, Mm -hmm. like, say, uh, some you've already done, like Tripods, for instance, uh, Mm -hmm. like um, Doctor Who or any of the ones that that were created to be an ongoing story, either a film or a a television series. Um, And the writers intended him to be a political statement and kind of uh, a media statement and a a story uh, almost as an Mm -hmm. afterthought, which I think is a lot of the criticism (laughs) that goes with him. The Pizzorno Max Edroom, you know, twenty minutes into the future—that was a throwaway film. Really, really, <laughs> was. I don't blame them for thinking that at the time.
0: <laughs> There's so much more we could talk about, but I think we should draw this to an end for now. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely brilliant, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it too. I have. Thank you. It's been a great night. Thanks both.
2: It's been fantastic. Amy, great to make your acquaintance. Gareth, shame I have to put up with yours, but you have to put up with
0: mine. <laughs> <laughs> Into every life, a little. Yeah, that's a...
1: <laughs> Especially somebody who used to write for the Red Dwarf magazine, because I think I still have all my original copies somewhere. Oh, Look uh, at
2: you, Jake Bullet. Jake Bullet was my. Jake
1: Bullet. <laughs> You're the Jake <laughs> Bullet guy. That's the thing that stuck out most for me, Jake Bullet. I absolutely adored that. <laughs> 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 <There is. laughs>
2: the, 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 the lovely thing about writing Jake Bullet was um, I was working with a guy called Carl Flint on it. So Mike Butcher and, and Rob, well, you know, um, you've met all the people involved now because um, <laughs> Brian Clark, Brian commissioned it. So Brian Clark mm. and and then Mike Butcher who worked with him. Well, Mike was the real commissioner. That's why I worked on Rainbow. Um but I used to work with uh, an artist called Carl Flint on, on the Jake Bullitt stuff. And Carl was working in this phenomenally innovative comic studio at the time, with Ed Hillier and Woodrow Phoenix, somebody else in there, I can't remember who, and I should give him credit. And I would write this script. I'd write this script, this, this Jake Bullitt script, which would be all right, you know, it was a, a 40s parody. And it'd come back with all these gags, all these visual <laughs> gags that the guys invented. And, and it's that wonderful thing as a collaborator, which funnily enough, I kind of got out watching the the background to the to the Max Headroom stuff that I miss a bit because I don't do it anymore. You, you put something in and then really creative people come back with a brilliant surrounding to what you did and you go, I've got my name on that. But people did so much better. And Carl was great, and Woody was great, and 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 Ed Hillier, And I know there's fantastic, cool studio. And they think, yeah. Jake Bullet, me three pages an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Crichton, there you go, there's Max Hedron with legs. Well, wow. oh, yeah.
2: yeah. We, we, never, we never finished Jake Bullet. We had big plans for Jake.
1: I know, I know.
2: Oh.
1: I, I, I'm aware of that and uh, slightly miffed to this day, in fact.
2: <laughs> well, talk to Brian. You talk to your mate, Brian, and say, right, Brian,
0: we need some money. <laughs> there's never been a Red Dwarf comic since. That's the odd thing. Uh, no. It was, not yes, I was a big fan of it myself, yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: your really- away somewhere. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I,
2: I, if i had if I, keep them there yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're not as good as you remember
1: <laughs> well you what? say that but when i moved which was quite a while ago now but was also quite a while after obtaining them um and i took them out of the cupboard and, and sort of took them with me I, you sit there and you flick through them don't you and i did flick through going oh i this was actually pretty good and and <laughs> the, i know that i'm picking this up now but the, the jake bullet stuff was i ended up reading them all through, so that was
0: oh, thank you <laughs> <So>. <laughs> jake the bullet the podcast coming thank soon
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, i'll oh, uh, <laughs> have to drag them out
0: of the attic for that to think
1: but they're, uh, they're very it's, uh, well sorry,
2: i'll also play my scan copies original artwork you, 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 know. oh, there you that's fair enough. <laughs> Actually, you need to ask my butcher. I mean, well, last thing, honestly. Um, there's a beautiful cover that Carl did, which was a parody of the Maltese Falcon, I think is the cover of this magazine, 16. And it's just a, uh, the case of the cashed-in carp. And it's mm-hmm. a beautiful parody of the Maltese Falcon And Mike Butcher, when he finished Red Dwarf That was the one piece of art he took with him And he's still got it this day So,
0: Well, thank you very much for your time Thank you very much for listening And we'll all get together again soon mm-hmm. Goodbye for now You've been listening to Very British Futures Produced by Gareth Preston Joining Gareth were Amy Elizabeth and Stephen Noble. Music by Chatri Art. For more information, you can follow the show on Twitter at FuturesVery or visit GarethPreston.log. Next
1: time, StarCops.